This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Will Sipling, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we will be talking to the Reverend Dr. Esau McCauley about his new book, Sharing in the Son's Inheritance, Davidic Messianism, and Paul's Worldwide Interpretation of the Abrahamic Land Promise in Galatians, published in 2017 by TNT Clark. Esau serves as Assistant Professor of New Testament at Wheaton College in Wheaton, Illinois, and is an ordained priest in the Anglican Church of North America, for which he serves as Director of Next Generation Leadership. Esau, thanks for coming on to the show. Thank you for having me. So I've given a short introduction about you, but I'd love to have you tell us just a little bit about who you are, uh, what you do, and any other details that I might have missed. Well, I teach New Testament at Wheaton, college and I'm I'm new there. This is my first semester and so far it's been great and I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Before that I taught at Roberts Wesley at Northeastern Seminary uh, at Roberts Wesleyan College in Rochester, Massachusetts. Back before that I this dissertation came from when I did my PhD at the University of St. Andrews and I studied under the direction of N.T. Wright. Though any errors in the book are my own, not his. <laughs> Good I'm to married know. for four wonderful kids. I don't want you know people yelling at, at Tom because of what I said. Uh, oh, definitely I'm married, not. have four right. kids, and uh, just trying to read the Bible and make sense of it as best I can. I love that. That's a great way to start. So you've got the family experience, the ministry experience, and yes. even working with uh, with Bishop Wright on on your yep. dissertation, which has been turned into this book published by TNT Clark. Yes, before I became, oh, sorry, before I became an academic, I was a pastor for about a decade. So I try to bring a little practical ministry experience to my academic work. And I think we definitely see that in your in your book, especially in that final chapter talking about the implications. But that's jumping a little bit ahead. Let's go ahead and start talking about uh, what was your dissertation uh, and what is now this book. But let's just begin by starting kind of meta, starting with the philosophy. What what caused you to ask the question, the research question behind this book? What was what was the inspiration behind it all? Well, research always takes strange uh, turns because the book that I produced was not the book that I set out to write. But all good research begins with a question. And so you begin to read the literature and there's something that kind of like your spidey senses go off and you go, there's something about this that isn't right. And one of the things that I kept reading, because I've always been interested in messianism and at the intersection of Jewish messianism and Christian messianism. And I kept reading all of this language about the incoherence of Messianism. There was no Messianic idea. There were no unified Messianic expectations. And there was this great emphasis on the diversity of Messianic ideas in the Second Temple period. And so I said, sure, I grant that there is diversity, but is there any unity? And so I had this sense that that it just couldn't be as incoherent as everyone said that it was. Maybe it's the... the, uh, 
the, the contrarian in me. So I thought to myself, well, I'll look because Abraham is so influential in Paul. I'll look at the Abrahamic promises and I'll trace the allusions to the Abrahamic promises through second tip with Judaism. And then I'll show that, hey, you know, Paul wasn't the only person who was talking about the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promises. I initially had um, the land promise, the blessing, the multiplication and the um, land blessing, multiplication, the Gentile inclusion were the four elements of my initial idea. And I remember going through the data and, and, and in some places being dismayed because there was very little that I found coherent as related to messianism and kind of the Gentile blessing or messianism and multiplication. And I remember sitting in uh, Tom's office one day and saying, you know, this dissertation might fail because what I expected to find, I didn't find. I said, I keep looking because I really wanted to, I was really wanted to talk about the Gentile blessing as being present somewhere. I thought it would be present more in second type of text, but it just wasn't there. And I remember sitting in his office one day and saying, the only thing that I keep finding is this emphasis on the Messiah and the land everywhere you look in all of these texts. But that's not what I want to talk about. <laughs> And then all of a sudden it clicked in my head and I found out that sometimes what you're searching for isn't there, but what is there is what is there. And so once I began to look and say, where are the places in which these royal messianic messianic figures are tied to the land promises, then all of a sudden the dissertation came into place. And so I, I thought when I began the process that it'd be a small section on the land and a large section on multiplication and Gentile blessing. And both of those were eventually excluded from the dissertation, and the whole thing became about the land itself and the Messiah. That's quite the overview, and it sounds like it was quite the adventure to research. I'm sure it probably wasn't fun uh, finding that there seemed to be something missing there. But I mean, that's it's turned into an incredible project there, linking the land and messianism. But but I'm thinking maybe to start off with, maybe you could give the listeners a definition or maybe your definition, summarized definition of what messianism is. Oh, that's a, that's a huge question. I, I would sure. say when I refer to messianism, I refer to... Uh, the interpretation of biblical passages related to kingly figures in the Second Temple period. And so what I mean by that is there's these series of passages that a a lot of people in and around the area of Jesus were appropriating to their own ends. And so, you know, passages that are familiar to Christians like Psalm 2 or Psalm 72 or 2 Samuel 7 are you or in Genesis 49:10 are being appropriated by by a variety of figures by a variety of authors in the second temple period to describe people who they think should be in charge of Israel. And so I make a distinction between what I refer to as someone who's a Davidic messiah that is someone who claims Davidic descent and who they appropriate these passages to describe the things that he does. So if someone alludes to Psalm 2 or 2 Samuel 7 in the description of this person we think should or is rule, rule over Israel, that person I'm calling a Davidic Messiah. I refer to royal figures as people who are also placed in positions of authority in the second temple period. They may even kind of call upon those same second temple texts. They may refer to Psalm 2, Psalm 89, Psalm 110, 
but they don't necessarily claim that a direct lineage to David. An example of that is the author of First Maccabees, who refers, who uses these same passages to allude to high priest, even though that high priest has bears no relationship to David um, biologically. That's very interesting. I mean, especially with the fact that you're using all of these incredible different sources. Um, I know in chapter one of the book, you're essentially laying the groundwork to look at these sources. And, and correct me if, I've, if I'm wrong, but, but it looks like you've taken sort of a historiographical approach. You're, you're looking through these different um, sources, the pseudepigraphal sources as well. Is there a particular reason why you used the historical tracing method for, for your research here? Yeah, so at the beginning, the, the, the book is rooted in two separate questions that I'm trying to bring together, and both of which are contested. <laughs> so oh. <laughs> the, the, the first thing that is contested is the importance of messianism in Paul's thought. And so the first part of the book in chapter one, I address research on Pauline messianism and lay out the different interpretations that have been available throughout the history of interpretation of Paul. And the point that I try to make is that there's a lot of people who who link Paul's messianism to kingdom. But for a variety of reasons, the people who link Paul's messianism to kingdom have not been taken very seriously. And so that's kind of pillar one to say that, you know, there is a strand of interpretation that is neglected that links Paul and messianism, but they did it almost intuitively or instinctively without strong exegetical backing. And so that's like pillar one of the thesis. Pillar two is the interpret the question of the land promise. Most people believed that Paul had abandoned the land promise, uh, that there was no concern for the land or the inheritance in Paul's writings. And there are different proposals to what happened to Paul's expectation for the land. And the main one was that Paul just abandons it. The second one is that Paul replaces the land with the gift of the spirit. Uh, And the third one is that Paul replaces the land with salvation. And I lay out the reasons why I think that each one of those is flawed. I think that there is no real second temple evidence the spirit ever replaces the land in any Jewish conception. And that the readings that Paul does that is based upon kind of misinterpretations of Galatians. The idea that Paul replaces the land with salvation is flawed because salvation still takes place in a locale. And that salvation is a way of kind of deconcretizing something that was really concrete. So if you ask a second temple Jew what's going to happen at the resurrection, they will say, sure, I'll be saved. But that salvation takes the form of being raised from the dead and returning to the place that God promised to his people. And so salvation to me isn't a sufficient answer for how Paul would articulate the reception of the inheritance. Because I think that Paul thought that Jesus was actually going to be the king who's actually going to rule over the earth and people are going to inhabit the physical space of the renewed earth. So with those two pillars down, that land could be expanded to um, include all of the renewed creation and that messianism could be linked to kingdom and Paul. The question is, are there other Jews in the second temple period who were linking messianism with land and territory. And so the the chapter that deals with um, the pseudepigraphal works are showing the ways in which texts from the Second Temple period tie the coming of the Messiah, or sorry, tie the coming of a royal figure to the fulfillment of these land promises. And so that's why I go through 
each one of the texts to show here's an example of someone in Paul's day, not making the exact same argument, right? Because no one's arguing that the Messiah is bringing this about through his death and resurrection and the, you know, the, the inclusion of the Gentiles. But I am arguing that there are people in the Second Temple period who are saying that the coming of the king or the Messiah means that God's promises to Israel about the land are being fulfilled. So that sounds like a good transition to that second chapter where you use those pseudepigraphal sources. What can we learn fr- from these in particular? I mean, we uh, pseudepigrapha is such an interesting topic, and you're including Psalm of Solomon, First Maccabees, and, and so forth. So, what is it that should be drawn from these sources? As as you mentioned, they're sort of Paul, similar to how Paul might have been writing. What what I try to explain to my students when I'm talking about how you use primary sources is how do you get your mind around what was happening and how people were, what was the imaginative world of Paul's day? And so I said to them, if you wanted to understand a student for from today, you probably wouldn't just go and find a bunch of stuff in the newspaper. You'd interestingly enough go on their Instagram feed and their Twitter feed and maybe you'd find some podcasts and some music. Because those are the primary documents informing the narrative world of the students today. And in the same way, if you want to say, well, what was what was imaginable um, within Paul's um, time frame, then these texts gives you uh, at least a framework. Now, Paul obviously could go beyond what was written in Second Temple text. Paul's not confined by what other people have said, but at least shows you the kind of conversation that were going on in Paul's day. And so when you look at something like um, Sec- Psalm of Solomon 17, you have this, this, this clear expectation and the clear allusion to these Davidic texts that I was talking about, like Psalm 2, Psalm 72, that when the Messiah comes, the Gentiles will be kicked out of the land, and then the people of Israel will receive the land promises. And when the people receive the land promises, because of the glorious rule of this king, even the Gentiles will be blessed. And so you see um, in Song of Solomon 17, the allusion to the Davidic text, the same way I think that Paul alludes to Davidic text, you see the fulfillment of the promises, which I think Paul also refers to the fulfillment of the promises. And then there were some other kind of motifs that I talked about um, as it relates to the land. And one of them was this idea of the new exodus. Because um, most uh, Jews of Paul's day, or many of them, were thinking of kind of God's restoration of Israel to independence in the land as being similar to God's first fulfillment of the promise, they began to evoke Um, Exodus imagery to describe their reception of the inheritance. And so when you see in those passages an allusion to these uh, prophetic texts that deal with the new Exodus, and you you deal with this idea that God's going to fulfill his promises through the Messiah, and you forget, you get this idea of inheritance, then I feel like it's a strong connection to Paul's day. I can say one more thing about Um, Psalm of Solomon 17, it's important because it literally says he's going to distribute them on the land. It said in the use of the the inheritance language that Paul does. So I think that um, Psalm of Solomon 17 is particularly important. Such an interesting source. I know for for those who aren't familiar with this literature or even biblical literature in general, I think your argument for uh, looking at what's in the social imaginary of the times makes sense. So maybe then that leads us on to chapter three. What's the significance of the Dead Sea Scrolls with this Davidic messianic uh, tone or message? 
Yeah, I know you want to get me to chapter three. I want to say one more thing about chapter two, and then I promise I'll, I'll move you forward. One Sounds of the things great. that's really interesting, if you if you look at chapter if you look at chapter two, is that if you look at the four texts that I refer to, the amazing thing about it is that the scope of the land could vary. So one 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 text could say when the Messiah or the royal figure comes, Israel's going to get the whole world. Another figure could say when the Messiah comes, just Judea is going to be restored. One figure could say, one one author could say, yes, the person who is coming is the Davidic Messiah. Another person can say, no, it's the high priest, but they still use the same passages. And so what I want to, what you, what you see in chapter two is despite the variety of portrayals that can occur of these royal figures, they all seem to be drawing upon a similar textual tradition. And it shows you the, the how people are reading the Bible. And so part of what this dissertation is, is a, an analysis of Bible reading and the use of the Bible to describe to, the, to, to describe their preferred future in um, the Second Temple period. So it's really a commentary on Second Temple Bible illusion. And so I just didn't want that part to get lost. But as it relates oh, sure, to chapter sure. three in the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Dead Sea Scrolls are, are controverted because we're not exactly sure who wrote them and where they came from. And so that isn't necessarily central to my uh, my thesis, whether or not the Dead Sea Scrolls written by the Essenes, whether it's a library, whether, you know, the various options that that are on, on the table. But what is important to see is that there is a group of people, and this is the important part, the people in the Dead Sea believes that they're the true Israel and the people who are actually located in mainstream Israel are like largely apostate. And then when the Messiah comes, he's going to decide kind of in favor of the Dead Sea community over against what they would see, especially sometimes they consider kind of the corrupt temple authorities. And so you see, I think, an important testimony to how early Christianity might have seen itself as this kind of offshoot, oh, sorry, the Dead Sea Scrolls saw themselves as, as, as the authentic um, Judaism that is being persecuted because of holding to the right beliefs around the interpretation of the law. Uh, and so I found that the Dead Sea Scrolls were, were extremely important because their messianic portrayals come out of the same context. One of the things that you see is, you see uh, in the in the chapters that we have, we have one that deals with, a section one that deals with 2 Samuel 7, one that deals with the book of Genesis, and others that deal with Isaiah. And so you're talking about the kinds of texts that the early Christians were using. We were using Isaiah, we're using the language of Jesus, the son, having some roots in second in second Samuel seven. And we have some of the things around the scepter and um, and the king coming out of Genesis 49. And so I think that the Dead Sea Scrolls, not that the Messiah's portrayal is the same as Jesus, because the in the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Messiah leads the armies to defeat the wicked Gentiles and the unfaithful Israelites. But in so much as it alludes to Second Temple passage. Sorry, in so much as it alludes to these passages to describe the Messiah, then they are evidence that the Jews of the period thought that when the Messiah came, the land promises would be fulfilled. And so together, you're talking about one, two. I think there's eight different texts from the Second Temple period that tie the coming of the royal figure to um, the fulfillment of the promises, which gives me, a, to me, a strong. Uh, contextual background for making a claim that Paul did something similar in Galatians. Hmm. 
And that's a good segue to the next two chapters of your book, where you methodically go through uh, chapter three, uh, section of chapter four, and and chapter five. I'd love for us to spend just a good little chunk of time here talking about your exegesis of, of this section. But I'll just hand the the reins over to you to uh, let you tackle that that part of the the book. Yes, one of the things that I that I want to say again is that. I'm not arguing that Galatians is about like the land promise as opposed to the role of the law in Christian faith. What I am saying is that in the course of Paul making his argument about the role, the continuing influence of the law, he makes it clear what he believes about the inheritance. And so the question that 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 undergirds all of Galatians is who how does one become an heir to the promises? How does one become an heir? And Paul's opponents, uh, on the one hand, are saying, well, you become an heir to the promises by um, doing the works of the law. And Paul's arguing that, no, you become an heir to the promises by uh, faith in the Messiah. So in verses 1, 3 to 5, the only thing I'm attempting to argue is that when Paul um, makes his argument based upon the spirit, where he goes, you know, how did you receive the spirit? Was it by um, the works of the law or by faith? Um, that, that Paul's allusion to the spirit, how do you make theological sense of it? We tend to think of this as kind of Paul's argument from experience. So because you had this powerful experience of the spirit, therefore, you know, you're a child of God. And what I try to show there really briefly was that if you look at uh, the passages from the Old Testament that Paul is drawing on, all of these passages that relate to the coming of the Spirit, or many of them, refer to the descent of the Spirit on God's people after the covenant curses are over. And so what I'm saying then, Paul's argument that they're receiving the Spirit is not simply saying, you receive the Spirit, therefore you know that um, you're God's child because of this emotional connection you have to Jesus. What he is saying is that the evidence of the spirit is that you're participating in the eschatological age promised in the prophets. And the prophets promised that God will pour his spirit out upon his people after the covenant curses were over. And so because you believe in Jesus and you see the spirit, that is evidence that you are participating in God's covenant people on the other side of the covenant curses. And when I refer to the covenant curses, I refer to those passages in Deuteronomy 27 to 30 that, that says to Israel that if you don't keep the law, then I will um, send you into exile from your land. There will be an increase in disease. There will be death. And so the covenant curses refer to this variety of uh, things that would befall Israel if they abandon the covenant. And if you read... Um, even passages like uh, books like Nehemiah, you see that even in Nehemiah, Nehemiah says that even though they're back in the land, it says we're still slaves. And so Nehemiah is arguing that even though Israel's returned to the land, that they, they, they're they still in some sense experiencing some of the covenant curses. When you turn to the Gospels and you see the depiction of people like John the Baptist coming, and they refer to passages like Isaiah 40, those passages all depict the end of the covenant curses. And so what I'm trying to say is that, that Paul is in continuity with people like Nehemiah or people like the gospel writers who believe that before the coming of the Messiah, Israel remained in the covenant curses. And the first piece of evidence that Paul 
puts forward to the Israel that the people are not under those curses and they're in this new community um, is the reception of the spirit in 315. Moving on to uh, 3, 6 to 8, I argue that uh, Paul's allusion to, and this is where I'll try try to simplify this as much as possible, Uh, but Paul's allusion to the Abrahamic promises especially uh, in, in, in verses three to six, have as their effect to make this argument that the Abrahamic promises themselves, the Abrahamic promises themselves in so much as they call for the Gentile blessing and in as much as they um, re- reflect Abraham being reckoned righteous by faith, suggest that Paul, that, that Paul thought that the inclusion of the Gentiles was always meant to be eschatological. And so once, when he says that the, the gospel is preached in advance to Abraham, the end you, the Gentiles will be blessed. I think that Paul is believes that insomuch that the Gentiles must be blessed as Gentiles. This is important. The Gentiles are not blessed by becoming Jews, but they're blessed as Gentiles implies a period of time in which the law is no longer effective. And Paul is saying, well, then how does the law become no longer effective? Then it must be only after the death and resurrection of Jesus exhaust the covenant curses in the law and allow for the inclusion of the Gentiles by faith. And so I think that Paul believes that Genesis 12, 3 introduces an, an epic that could only climax Jesus' death and resurrection. It deals with the problem of the law. Because as long as the law is in place, a Gentile can't be blessed because in order to receive the blessing, one must become a Jew. And so Paul's point is that justification by faith um, along with the promise of the Gentile blessing, were always the means by which God planned to include His people, and they weren't—they um, weren't these new innovations that happened because He got a new idea. So that's at least three, one, and nine. I can go on and talk about ten to fourteen if I haven't bored you to death yet. No, I think that's incredibly interesting. I'm seeing these connections with your with your method uh, and how you're exegeting this section. Yeah, let, let's hear about uh, ten through fourteen. So. If 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 I'm correct that what Paul is saying is that in three one to five the experience of the Spirit shows that Israel is participating that the Jews and Gentiles are participating in this post-exilic community that was always a part of God's plan, as seen in the very first words of um, uh, to Abraham that in you the Gentiles will be blessed that 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 gives birth to an epic. Then in ten to fourteen, Paul refer, re, refers to he he refers to the covenant curses, right? Cursed are those who do not do everything written in the curse of the law uh, in the book of the law. And what I'm arguing there is that Paul is not saying in, in the common reading of this is that Paul says that well, if you want to be a Christian and so if you want to be justified by the law, then the law requires absolute perfection, and because no one can be perfect, you must rely on justification by faith and if you try to keep the law, you will make one mistake and then you'll be cursed. Now, I do believe that Paul thinks that we're justified by faith, but I don't think the argument that he's making here is based upon perfection. I think that Paul is actually engaging in a reading of Israel's history. When, if you look, and, and I have tons of evidence, and if you're really interested in it, you can you can look in the book. But the the there's there's reason to believe that Paul is referring to in Galatians 3.10, the entirety of the nation of Israel that comes under the curse for not doing all the things written in the book of the law. And then in a, in a variety of places in kind of the second type of period, 
Deuteronomy, this, these Deuteronomy passages function as something as a, of a prophecy that because Israel wouldn't keep the law, they would find themselves under the curse. And so Paul's point isn't that if you try to do the law and you fail, God's going to curse you. Paul's argument is because Israel corporately had failed to do the law, being circumcised and coming under the law does not move you forward in history. It doesn't make you more acceptable to God. It actually moves you back into history before the coming of the Messiah when the people defined by the law remain under the curse. And so Paul's options aren't, well, you can try to be under the law, and if you're perfect, then you'll be fine. But if you're imperfect, then you're going to be cursed. Paul's point is the very act of putting yourself under the law subject you, subjects you to the covenant curse that have been undone by the Messiah. And so Paul's point then when he gets to verse 313 is that Paul, that Christ has already taken the curse of the law upon himself by being by being crucified on a tree. And so now, because Christ has dealt with the problem, dealt with the problem of the law, the blessing can finally come to the Gentile. That's that's Galatians three fourteen. So Paul's point is then that the thing that was hindering Gentile blessing is that you can't be included into Israel because Israel remained under the covenant curses. And you can't be included into Israel because being included into Israel as a Gentile by the law means that you cease to be a Gentile, you become a Jew. But Christ has dealt with both of those problems. He's exhausted the curses. He's taken the curses upon himself. He suffered the punishment for Israel's corporate sin so that the curses have done their worst. The worst thing that the, that the curse included within its provisions is death. And once you've experienced death, the law has no further hold on you. And Paul's point then is that the covenant curse has been dealt with by Jesus. And now those who are in Christ are on the other side of the covenant curses, and they're being blessed with Abraham. And so I think that what Paul is arguing in 3, 1 to 14 is the following. Gentiles, you're thinking about coming under the law as a means of becoming an heir to the inheritance. But that was never what God intended. God always tended to, to bless you as Gentiles, as is seen by the death and resurrection of Jesus, that both removes the curse that had hindered the Jews from receiving the inheritance and made the Gentiles heirs. And so the, the, the conclusion of these of these 14 verses actually doesn't move my inheritance from it, our argument very, forward very far, but at least gives you some idea of how Paul thought that um, Jews and Gentiles became heirs together in Jesus. And so by the time you get to um, 14, you have you should, if you kind of follow Paul's reasoning, believe that Jews and Gentiles are heirs together in Christ Jesus. So that's, oh goodness, that's, uh, having not really heard that exegesis before, I feel like there is my, uh, my own study of this passage will be affected by that. Um, that's only the first 14 verses. You've got a kind of a division there. No, 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 no. This is, this is amazing. Um, but you've, you've got a chapter division between, uh, Galatians three, one through 14. And then the next section, is there a reason for a division there besides just the, the taxonomy or do we see kind of a shift in what Paul is doing and therefore designates a new chapter? I think that if you go if you go from one to fourteen, the point is by the time you get to fourteen, you are in a place where the blessing of Abraham comes to the Gentiles and they receive the promise of spirit by faith. I think that then he goes um, into more detail about the provisions of the covenant itself. And so if you look at verses fifteen and following, he gives you an example about the covenant. He goes, you know, no one annuls a covenant once it's been ratified. 
and the promise was made to Abraham and his offspring. And I think what he's trying to say there is he's trying to um, clarify who actually are the heirs to the covenant. And so he says the Abraham, the promise to the Abraham and his offspring doesn't refer to offsprings plural, but the offspring singular, and that one offspring is Christ. Now, Paul has gotten into a lot of trouble for Galatians 3.16 because it seems that he's playing games with the Hebrew. I mean, sorry, with the, with, the, with the Hebrew and the Greek, referring to like not the plural, but the singular, because in Greek, they could have a corporate singular. I mean, a corp, you know, so it could be seed, but seed can refer to multiple people or one person. It, it seems that Paul is here playing fast and loose with the rules. But I actually think that Paul is in, in 316, once again, engaging in a redemptive kind of reading. Because if you actually go back and you read um, these Genesis promises, they are singular before they become plural in this sense. So if you look at the promises in Genesis, um, there is this place where Abraham goes, well, maybe let Ishmael live before you. And he goes, well, no, it's not going to be Ishmael, but it's going to be Isaac. And then it says, through Isaac shall your seed be named. So it's not, you know, this corporate group, it's it's focused on Isaac. But even within that promise to Isaac, when God speaks to Sarah, it says the king is going to come from Sarah. And so there's a prophecy of both kingship and this singular seed in the Isaac-Ishmael distinction. If you go to the next generation, you have a similar circumstance with Esau and Jacob, where it's not Esau, it's Jacob. And then once again, you get the prophecy that um, from Jacob's line are going to come these kings. And so I think that, and then when you get to the Abraham, you get to the um, Davidic promises later, the Davidic promises themselves allude to the Abrahamic promises. So you get to passages like Psalm 72 that claim that the Abrahamic promises are being fulfilled in and through the son of David. And so when Paul talks about Jesus as the ultimate seed, I think that what Paul is arguing is, is that the Christ is the ultimate heir of the promises made to David and Abraham. So he says that the, that the, that the promises ultimately belong to not Israel corporately, but to the singular Messiah. Um, and so his point is that since the promises refer to the Messiah, the law that came 430 years after that can't nullify the promise. And so the question then becomes, well, what is it that is promised to the Messiah? This is where the the question of the inheritance becomes very, very important. If the promises were made to the Messiah, then the question is, what does God promise David's descendants? And then places like Psalm 2 become really important. You are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I'll give you the nations of the world as your inheritance. So here's the argument of Galatians. When you got to verse 318, he says it. For if the inheritance comes through the law, it is no longer by the promise, but God gave it to Abraham by the promise. And so if God gave a promise to Abraham that his offspring will be the heir and that the heir is and the ultimate heir is Christ the Messiah. Then what is it that belongs to Messiah? And I think that it is here that the rest of the arguments kind of fall apart. It makes no sense to say, what does it belong to? What did God promise to Abraham and the Messiah? To say it's the spirit doesn't make a lot of sense to me. To say that it's salvation here, that like how God promised to save Jesus, that makes no sense. But if you say that the inheritance here refers to the messianic reign over all creation, then you can see how the inheritance promised to Abraham as fulfilled 
through the Messiah Jesus actually make sense as a coherent concept. And so I wanted to, I think that what changes in Galatians 3, 15 and following is the question of who exactly is the heir. And once Paul clarifies that the Messiah is the heir, then it becomes really clear that he's reading the Abrahamic promises to the Messianic promises, and the Messianic promises inform our definition of the inheritance. And that's the thing is there with passages like Psalm 2 and Psalm 72 um, come into play. Now, I'm going to kind of skip the discussion of some of the nuanced exegetical stuff around um, Galatians 3, 21 to 22, and it's head towards the end of that chapter where you look at um, this passage that I think is almost always, we don't know what to do with it, but we love it. When you get to, um, for you're all sons of God through faith, for as many as you are in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. We love that passage mostly because it gives us a, 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 a opportunity to kind of wax eloquent about kind of the egalitarian nature of early Christianity. But we often forget that this seems to have nothing to do with Paul's actual argument, because why is Paul talking about, you know, Jews, Gentiles, slave and free and equality here? And I actually think that Old Testament inheritance law as it relates to, uh, it, it is, is, is extremely relevant because to, over, to, to make it very simple, in normal circumstances, Gentiles could not, I mean, uh, women couldn't inherit. So when Paul said there's um, no male and female, he's not referring to the statement that gender simply doesn't matter. He's saying that in most cases in the Old Testament, in order to be, to receive an inheritance, you had to be married. Now, in a case where the the father had no male heirs, in the case like the daughters of the Zelophad, I think it's the name in Numbers, then a woman could inherit, you know, by herself. But normally you had to inherit as a part of a male and a female pair. That's the reason why Paul says there's no male and female when in the other two negations, they are kind of male, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. But here Paul is saying male and female. And I think that's because Paul's referring to marriage. And Paul's point is that in Christ, the old inheritance laws that says that women could not inherit the land normally is done away with. Another group of people who couldn't inherit was clearly Gentiles, right? If you're a Gentile, you can't become an heir. Another group that couldn't inherit in Paul's day were slaves. Slaves received a lot of benefits from, in the, they, they, kind of, they didn't receive, receive a lot of benefits. That's the wrong statement. Slaves receive the Sabbath, and there were other elements of the law that made provision for slaves, but slaves couldn't inherit. And Paul's point is, in Christ, the very law that says the Gentiles can't inherit is the thing that they're, that Paul's opponents are trying to get the Gentiles to do. And so Paul's point is that if you do actually, uh, it's, it's the law that kind of separates you from this opportunity to, to inherit. But in Christ, you're all sons of God or you're all children of God through faith. And I think the point of all of that is not simply that, you know, that the law is done away with and we're all heirs. But I think that if, citizenship is tied to property rights historically kind of in greco-roman culture they kind of uh, they gave property rights or the ability to own land to people who were valuable and paul's idea that jews gentiles slaves free men and women all had inheritance rights says something about the kind of kingdom that paul thought that jesus brought into 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 play so i should think that it's it is by attending to a close reading of the context that the radically subversive nature of what Paul is saying about the inheritance um, comes into play. One of the things that I want to notice is that when you get to the very end of Galatians 3, um, 29, 
he says, and if you're Abraham's offspring, you're heirs according to the promise. So Paul feels like he's made his argument if he's convinced the the people who are in Galatia, the heirs to what they their heirs to this coming inheritance um, in the Messiah. That's incredible. Um, yeah, that's a verse that's often quoted, um, but obviously it seems that there is a little bit more to it than just maybe what's on the surface. So yeah, people are always wondering like, why does Paul go this and this? like, what is it that unites these three negations at this point in Galatians? And I think that the the thing that unites these three negations is the fact that women, Gentiles, and slaves in Jewish inheritance law, land law, were were precluded from being heirs to the inheritance. And Paul's point is, is that in Jesus, you all become heirs to the inheritance by faith. And sharing in that, which is the title. Um, sharing in the, in really, the, in the uh, inheritance. Right, right. Now, for the sake of time, I know we still have a couple more passages that we could go through, or we could know that this is this is just a fascinating. But we could also just jump to chapter six and jump to the implications section, unless there's anything else in between that you wanted to cover. Um, nope. I'll I'll I'll, I'll jump I'll jump ahead. Great. Let's do that. So, looking at these implications, uh, well, I mean, that's the question is right there. What? are the implications then from understanding what what Paul is saying, what you're arguing that Paul is saying here about the more open, perhaps, uh, way that there's this participation and sharing and inheritance? What does that mean? I think that Paul wants us to understand in Galatians, we share in that which belongs to the Messiah. And all that the Messiah has is ours. And that includes the Messiah's inheritance. And so rather than seeking the law as the means for which you gained in the inheritance. Paul says that if you seek the Messiah, you receive, you share in that which belongs to him. And so I think one of the, one of the um, implications is I think that this idea that Paul has abandoned the land promise, is just wrong. I think that Paul thinks that we, I think that Paul believes that Christians, when Christians are raised from the dead, they will return to a transformed creation that they will inhabit in fulfillment of the promises that God made to Abraham. And so I think that Paul believes that all the Abrahamic promises are in some sense fulfilled. And so that basically the, the scholarship as it relates to the land and Paul is just wrong. Uh, the second thing that I, that I think that is incorrect is that the scholarship related to Messianism is also wrong. The idea that Paul doesn't tap into kind of the intersection of Jewish and Christian messianism is wrong. And though there is no unified idea of the Messiah that all Jews everywhere agreed upon, I do think there are patterns in the text and there are interesting ways in which Paul picks up on those patterns. So I think that a um, a good way of kind of continuing this would maybe to bring in Paul's understanding of the inheritance into, in, into conversation with other people in the New Testament. Another thing that you could do is maybe bring in Paul's understanding of the Messiah into conversation with other parts of the New Testament. And I think that um, one of the things that also has kind of hindered discussion of, of Galatians in particular is a failure to really take seriously the role that the Deuteronomic curses play in Paul's argument. And there's been a lot of kind of scholarship in 
a lot of Pauline scholarship around the role the Deuteronomic curses play in Galatians, but I still think there's some interesting things to be done there. Because I think that we the Christians often misunderstand the curse. But I think the 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 most important thing that is interesting to me as it relates to that is the kingdom. And I, I had to be very disciplined because I had all kinds of things I could say about the kingdom. And it's maybe reserved to a few passages, a few paragraphs at the very end of the book. But and I said it at the end of chapter three, um, we tend to find the revolutionary aspect in Christianity and Galatians in the negation of kind of ethnicity, class, and gender. And we think that kind of the equality of across ethnicity, class, and gender called for in Galatians is what's revolutionary. I don't think that, I think that's important, but I think that needs to be tied to the idea of Jesus's kingdom. Because it is not simply that, that gender doesn't matter, right, in any sense. That, But what, what does matter is that gender has no bearing on your standing in the kingdom. The men and women are equally heirs. And to say, to or even to a slave who, could, who, in, who in some cases had very little property or authority of their own, that they have an inheritance. I think that um, if all Christian if, if all Christian theology is kind of trying to bring into the present our eschatology, right, living in the in the present in light of the coming future, then Paul's um, eschatological vision of an e- egalitarian kingdom, uh, in the sense that Jews, Gentiles, men and women, and slave and free are all equal, then the question becomes: Why can't we begin to? kind of inhabit that reality now. And so I think that the, the kingdom membership being equal um, is really important for how we think about kind of Christian practice and action. So it sounds like this is where the academic and the ministerial pastoral side is coming together for the academics who are wanting to understand this better. I was good through the entire book, but I had to sneak, had to sneak in <laughs> in the last couple of pages. And it works. And it's, it's I mean, this is really uh, just from reading what you've written here, this is Paul's message as well. And he's he's doing this work of a rabbi while applying it in some, you know, applicative in some pastoral way. So it seems to be very much in the spirit of Paul there. Well, that about sums up our, our time for today. And we've taken up a good deal of your time. Thanks so much for sharing with us. But before we close out, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about uh, other projects you're working on. I know you actually have two other books in the works as well. Maybe you can give us the more information about those. Yeah. Yes, I have two books. The first one is uh, it's untitled, but they're both by the first one is both by academic IVP academic. The first one that deals with African American biblical interpretation, where um, I'm not so much setting out a method. I think that in the first chapter, I kind of review um, different ways that African Americans engage in biblical interpretation. But rather than engaging in writing a book about method, I really want to do is look and see it, see the ways in which reading the Bible from a decidedly African-American perspective, uh, while kind of respecting the text ability to speak into the African-American experience, will allow biblical interpretation to function as a means of hope in the African-American community. And so the book consists of an introduction and a book, a chapter on method, and then a series around six or seven exegetical essays dealing with issues related to kind of African-American life in the United States today. So there's a, there's a book on uh, kind of a biblical theology of policing. There's a book, on, there's, a cha- sorry, there's a chapter on um, ethnic identity. There's a chapter on pol- uh, public advocacy. There's a chapter on the search for justice. There's a, a chapter on black pain or black anger. And so 
what I'm really trying to do is to say, how can we exegete or interpret towards hope um, as an African-American of faith? The second book is a single volume commentary on the New Testament called the New Testament in Color. And it brings together Black, white, Latino, um, First First Nations, Native Americans um, together and different people that are contributing uh, kind of uh, commentaries written from their social location um, on uh, books of the Bible. And we're hoping that through that dialogue, we can kind of learn to read the Bible together as kind of an international, well, not an international, because this is mostly um, American-born ethnic minorities, how we can learn to read the Bible together here and how we can, through that interaction, become better readers of the text. You saw that sounds like great projects, and we'll have to get you back on to talk about those whenever they come out. I think if, if this you know, sharing in the Sun's Inheritance is any indication, these will be both very uh, applicative, but also very academic as well. Well, on that note, Esau, uh, thanks again for being on the show. Thanks again for your time. Uh, I hope that folks will be looking into this book as well as your other forthcoming books. And on that note, we'll uh, talk again soon is what it sounds like. All right. Thanks a lot. Thank you.